0: Awesome. I'm hoping that with the sermon, I can just leg out a stand-up double. But y'all knocked it out of the park. Clearly a home run there. Hey, this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18. If you have a Bible, I would love you to make your way there to Acts 18. We're going to look at the the last part of chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19 and if you don't have a Bible you can grab one from the pew rack and uh, today's passage will begin on page 929. So I'd love for you to find that passage and of course it's always printed for you in the bulletin. But we're going to read this morning uh, Acts 18 verse 24 through chapter 19 verse 10 just a continuous unit. They uh, shouldn't have put the chapter break there, but they didn't ask me when they did that several hundred years ago. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word remains forever. Your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and your Word works. Uh, Lord, your word, when, uh, and because it is inspired by the Spirit, and when the Spirit goes before the reading and preaching of the word, you unstop our ears and you open our eyes and you, you give us receptive hearts. And I pray you do that this morning. Father, make your living word live within us. Give me clarity and conviction and help us all to see Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, we'll begin in verse 24. This is God's holy word. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and, they took him and explained to him uh, the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. May God write his word upon our hearts. If there was a patron saint for Presbyterians, it might very well be Apollos. <laughs> you see, we, we Presbyterians pride ourselves on scholarship, and Apollos was an excellent scholar. There is an old tale about the settling of the American West Uh, And the tale says that that Methodist ministers would travel just a little bit further west than the last known settlement, and there there they would settle down. They would establish a church and a school and a hospital, because because the emphasis among the early Methodists was on the church providing social services. Baptists would travel as far west as there was standing water, (laughs) because... Their emphasis, of course, is on immersing new converts. And Presbyterian ministers would travel as far west as the wagon trails were wide enough to carry their wagons full of books, because we certainly love our books. Right out of the gate here in chapter 18, we're told that Apollos was a native of Alexandria, and that tells us a whole lot more than where he was from. You see, Alexandria uh, in this day and age was one of the three great learning centers uh, of the ancient world. Uh, it, was, it was a place where scholars convened. We know from Josephus, the early historian, that Apollos was an Old Testament scholar, that he had studied and was very familiar with the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll come across, that's what the LXX means, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written in Alexandria 200 years earlier. So Apollos was from a city known for its scholarship. He was an Old Testament scholar who had studied the Septuagint. He had a mastery of classical Greek. That's why many um, throughout history including Martin Luther, by the way, have proposed that perhaps Apollos was the author of Hebrews. There's been some question about who authored Hebrews because the author never identifies himself, but Apollos is a pretty good bet. So we know that he's from a city of scholarship, and then verse 24 builds Apollos' reputation by telling us that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, Friends, Luke wants us to understand early on that Apollos was a sharp tack, that he was a smart cookie, that he was committed to biblical precision. He would have made a fine Presbyterian. Uh, Presbyterians, if if you're new um, to to the Presbyterian church, those of us in the Reformed world, we like to dot our theological T's or dot dot our doctrinal T's (laughs) Dot our theological T's and dot our doctrinal I's. Right? What did I say that wrong? Strike that and reverse it. We dot our I's and we cross our T's and we can't speak worth anything. You should ask Caleb Harlan um, this week. Caleb is our RUF pastor uh, he and Meggie joined the church a couple of weeks ago. On October first, Caleb uh, will be ordained as a teaching elder or a pastor in the Gulf Coast Presbytery. Ask him about our commitment to precision. He spent twelve hours taking written and oral exams uh, over the last few weeks. Those exams covered English Bible, uh, theology, sacraments, church history, and uh, the Book of Church Order. That was after he had graduated from seminary. I mentioned I mentioned that one of the categories that we examine our candidates in is English Bible, and that's because before they uh, test on English Bible, they have to express proficiency in Hebrew and Greek. In a week, on October first, a week from Tuesday, he'll stand here in this room. Don't worry, Caleb. It's not intimidating. He'll stand here in a room full of 60 or 70 elders and be asked anything and everything imaginable. We're nothing, if not thorough and precise. When I was in college, I uh, early on made friends with a group of guys, and we were walking along the same path of life, sort of preparing for the same sort of uh, life of ministry. We began meeting together regularly, and we would... Uh, we would read Calvin, and it, uh, John Calvin. It wasn't long before I asked Calvin into my heart. And uh, <laughs> during that season, I became a compulsive reader. And I read Calvin, and I read Luther. And I was introduced to Louis Burkhoff, Dutch theologian. I read Hodge and Spurgeon, of course. And, and during that season, something began to happen to me That happens to many people when they enter the world of Reformed theology. When they get their first dose of what we value as Presbyterians, and what happened is, I grew a big head, but not a burning heart. Precision. Going back to Apollos, the description of him doesn't end with his scholarship. We're told that he's a native of Alexandria. He's from a city of scholarship. He's a he's a a master of the classics. He's well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. He's competent in the scriptures. He's an eloquent man. But then we're told in verse 25 that his precision was matched by his passion. In verse 25, it says that he was fervent in spirit. And that literally means he was spiritually impassioned. Spiritually impassioned. And that's what I want to drill down into. Biblical precision and spiritual passion must go together we mustn't substitute one for the other. Biblical precision, spiritual passion are are meant to go together. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I, I watch the face of the groom as the bride enters the sanctuary and walks down the aisle. Now, everyone else in the sanctuary is looking at the bride, but not me. I'm looking at the groom. And I look into his eyes and I see awe and wonder and delight and longing. And unfortunately, and this this happens all too often, a few years will pass, and I'll get a call from that couple that I've married, and they'll want to meet. Perhaps their their marriage has fallen on hard times. And whenever they, they come to meet, they some will often meet here at the church and they'll enter the conference room. And I do the same thing that I did at their wedding. I'll watch the face of the groom as they enter the conference room, and I want to see how he looks at his wife. It's heartbreaking, but many times I'll see that passion has waned and delight's been replaced by distance, and it's clear from his face. Years ago, I heard a marriage counselor say that a newly married couple, this was his advice, a newly married couple should put a marble into a jar every time that they are intimate during the first year of marriage. And then they should spend the next several years emptying the jar by taking a marble out every time that they are intimate. And his point was, the jar will fill up a lot faster than it's emptied. If your relationship with Jesus burns hot initially, but there's no fuel for the fire, Meaning, meaning when, you, when you came to know Jesus and all his goodness and greatness, glory and grandeur, if that fire burned hot, but then, like many marriages, the passion begins to wane. If there's no fuel for the fire, and I'm talking about the fuel of Scripture, God's revelation to us, the fuel of prayer, and yes, even the fuel of theology then your relationship will burn out. And so, friends, I know I'm kind of speaking internally. What I want to call us to as Presbyterians is a passion for Jesus and not just precision in our doctrine. I want to call us to both. That we, like Apollos, that we are well acquainted with the scriptures, that, that we are articulate and understand God's revelation to us, but that it's not simply here, but here. That we are spiritually impassioned as well as precise. And I want to ask you, are you more in love with Jesus today than you were when you first came to know him? Are you passionate about the gospel and are you spiritually impassioned? And yet... Passion will only take you so far. I think that's why I see many marriages struggle. They've lost the passion because there's no depth. The passion has waned, but there's nothing undergirding that passion. There's no depth. Passion must be guided by precision. Christ calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our love for Christ Our passion for his gospel must travel that 18 inches from our head to our heart. And so during seminary, um, as I began to become more and more Presbyterian and Reformed in my thinking, in my theology, and in my practice, I told you I gained a big head but not a burning heart. And it wasn't until I had graduated from seminary and taken my first call to Eastern Shore Presbyterian It wasn't then that I, it wasn't until then that I began to see the gospel as truly powerful, truly beautiful. My friend and mentor Bruce O'Neill, the man who was the senior pastor who hired me, he helped me grow to see grace as more than a system of doctrine. So in college, I was so excited about the doctrines of grace, but that's all it was, it was a doctrine. But to see the doc, the grace as more than a system of doctrine, but the animating force of life, and to realize that I need the grace of the gospel as much today as I needed it when I was saved at 14. That I, that I never move beyond my need for the gospel. I, I, never, I never advance beyond grace. So what we see here in this this individual that's held up, Apollos, is that he was passionate and he was committed to precision, and that he was also committed to growing in the gospel. And friends, that is a lifelong endeavor. Growth in the gospel is a lifelong endeavor, and even Apollos had some growing to do. So we're not given the details. For whatever reason, Luke doesn't give us the details. But but Apollos' understanding of the gospel was a little bit off. Verse 25 says that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So more than likely what that means is that even though Apollos was an Old Testament scholar, he was well acquainted with the Septuagint, he was a very competent teacher, In some way, his understanding of the gospel was incomplete. And throughout history, scholars have said that more than likely, he held to a form of Johannine asceticism. Asceticism that came from the disciples of John. In other words, his understanding of the gospel was probably a little bit works-based. And the way that Luke articulates it is, even though his Christology, to put it in theological terms, even though his Christology was spot on, his practical soteriology was a bit off. And so what did Aquila and Priscilla do? They took him aside and they explained to him more accurately the way of God. Gospel growth is a lifelong endeavor. Listen, friends, we can believe the gospel and still not entirely get the radical implications and applications of the gospel. This doesn't mean that we're not believers. It means that our understanding of the fully-orbed gospel is in some way incomplete. And it's a lifelong endeavor to understand the gospel more fully. We can use a number of illustrations or analogies. If you think of the gospel as a, a multifaceted diamond, that it's a lifelong endeavor. You can believe the gospel. You can know the gospel is glorious and brilliant and, blue, and beautiful, but it's a lifelong endeavor to see all the glorious facets of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. That's one analogy. Or we can, we can think about uh, layers And we never get to a point where we've peeled back. We're constantly needing growth in the gospel. No amount of passion. Look, you can be passionate. But no amount of passion will make up for a deficient gospel. In fact, many times, passion is built upon a deficient gospel. If you believe that passion alone will sustain you, then you will fall into emotional slavery. You'll come to church every week expecting a greater experience of more robust emotions. And, and I want you to understand this, and I know that I'm, again, preaching to the choir here, but us as Presbyterians, we, we Presbyterians, those of you who are, and for this moment, this morning, all of you are to some degree, we have to understand that emotions aren't bad. Emotionalism is a problem. Emotionalism is a problem, but we need to engage the whole man, the whole life, that emotions and passions flowing from a right understanding of God are not bad. We must get the gospel right and believe that grace is more than a system of doctrine. And as our sister church, uh, Trinity up in Owasso, their slogan is, grace changes everything. Everything. And when our eyes are open to to that gospel, it does produce passion where we live in awe at the majesty of God and the glory of Jesus. So first, what I want you to wrestle with and understand is that precision and passion must go together. We've got to be as deep as we are wide that we've got to to love God with our whole being and to invest ourselves in his word and come to love theology and um, understanding God more deeply, but it can't stop there. Let me give you a second thought to chew on. Content isn't the same as conversion. So sometime later, um, we find this at the beginning of chapter 18. Apollos was at Corinth And there again, Paul and he crossed paths and they came to Ephesus. And it says there that he found some disciples. There in Ephesus, he found some disciples. And I think this is a wonderful proof text for the doctrine of the visible church. You see, these disciples were part of the community of believers in Ephesus. They were were part of the church. They had been baptized, but they had never been truly converted. They knew about Jesus. They knew John's message of repentance and faith. They even identified with the church, but they did not know Jesus. Do you understand the difference? Friends, knowing about Jesus isn't the same as knowing Jesus. Sometimes the most learned are the most lost, and sometimes those with a very simple knowledge of Jesus are saved. And it works both way, both ways, it's a two-way street. We mustn't assume, we mustn't assume that a person who knows all of the Sunday school answers, or even a person who regularly participates in church activities, has a saving knowledge of Jesus. We shouldn't make that assumption, assumption. nor should we assume that someone who can't even locate the book of Acts in the Bible isn't a Believer. Friends, this changes how we understand our own spiritual condition and the spiritual condition of others. Perhaps you have based your assurance of salvation on knowing the content of the gospel, but you've never fallen in faith upon the power of the gospel. Those aren't the same thing. Or maybe you're concerned because you, you don't know all the answers. You, you don't know Scripture like like you want to, and, and perhaps you wonder if you're even saved at all. Content isn't the same as conversion. One of, my, uh, one of my doctoral courses was in the history of biblical interpretation, and we were asked to read a book called The Lost Christianities by Bart Ehrman. I'm not sh- sure if you're familiar with Bart Ehrman. I don't recommend him. Don't go out and um, go on Amazon and buy one of his books, It's a Waste of Money and Time. Bart Ehrman is an incredible biblical scholar, an amazing biblical scholar. He's also a lost heretic who is far from the kingdom of God. And I don't don't use that, that label heretic very loosely or very often. Ehrman knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He knows the content of Scripture far better than anyone in this room, but he has never been baptized and sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's never been converted, and he himself will attest to that. He thinks it's all a hoax, that studying Scripture for him is simply an academic exercise. He he thinks that what we're doing here, when we marry knowledge with faith, he thinks it's a sham, that it's a placebo for the weak minded. And so don't assume that having content means that you have conversion. You can know this Bible better than anyone in this room, and that doesn't mean you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have there in Ephesus were some people who were connected to the visible church. They knew about Jesus. They knew John's message of repentance and faith. They had even been baptized, but they had never been converted. Friends, we have to understand the distinction between content and conversion, between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And the reason that's important is because in a place like Tulsa, everyone seemingly knows facts about Jesus. Of course, we, we are increasingly becoming more secular. The, the Bible belt is starting to loosen a bit. But, but it is hard It is hard to find many people here in Tulsa who don't know anything about Jesus, about the Bible. Uh, Tim Keller, if you're familiar with him, he uh, had pastored a church redeemer in New York. He's since retired and moved on to some other ministries. But he says that pastoring a church in the South or in the Bible Belt is harder than pastoring a church in Manhattan where he served for many years. You see, in Manhattan, it's more black and white. He said that in places like Tulsa, you have to convince people they are lost before they can be saved. Because everyone, everyone thinks they are a Christian because they know facts about Jesus, and Christianity is such a cultural force. And so whether it's our, our, our understanding of our own spiritual condition, when we think of our own spiritual condition or whether it's, it's how we look at others, we must understand that content doesn't equal conversion, that you can know all the answers and still be far from Christ, or that you can know none of the answers and still be near to Him. I mentioned last week that I've been a Christian for 29 years. I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I really believed that life would have gotten a lot easier by now that my walk with Christ would be easier. I thought that I would be a lot better than I am. I, I often feel like I'm taking one step forward and two steps back. I know the content of the Bible. I believe the doctrines of grace. I love Reformed theology. You know, Jason was talking about how great it is in, in, in an ecumenical sense, in a Catholic, lower sea sense, the, the church, that, that we're not... This God hasn't relegated himself to the PCA. Praise God for that. That the church is much bigger than what we're doing here. But I do love, and that's why I'm a Presbyterian pastor, friends. I I do love Reformed theology, and I love the way that it understands Scripture, and it gives me a way of understanding Scripture that I think is faithful and right. But I can never think that I've arrived. And you can never think that you've arrived. That just because we know Scripture, just because we've asked Calvin into our heart, just because we can recite the doctrines of grace, you can maybe write out the ordo salutis. Wonderful. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That you are in constant need of gospel growth. There's never a time, you know, uh, I was talking about this with my two oldest sons because one is 18 and obviously has been driving for a couple of years. One is about to be 16, and uh, will be driving. Forewarning. And um, and uh, the problem they have is they're directionally challenged because they don't have to be. All of their maturing years, they've had a phone in their pocket which has built-in GPS, and all they have to say is, "Hey Siri." Take me to the gathering place, and it guides them to the gathering place, but not me. I know north, south, east, and west, and Tulsa is the easiest city to navigate. Everything's on a mile grid. You just know downtown is where 1st Street is, and you just know I'm nine miles from downtown because I'm at 91st Street, and if you kind of know your Ivy League schools, you can figure out Harvard and Yale, you know, like, it's the easiest city. So I never pull out, when I'm traveling locally, I never pull out my phone for directions, I, I, let me say that again. I don't need to pull out my phone for directions, but I do. I do because I love that sweet, soothing voice saying, you have arrived. <laughs> right? I don't, to, I don't need to hear it, but I love hearing it. I, I, love, I love when I get to my destination hearing, and I've got a British Siri voice. I changed it to the, I love her saying, you have arrived. And my iPad now says, Siri not available because I've uh, put it on (laughs) airplane mode. She heard me. Scary. (laughs) Friends, that's the only place when I've arrived is when I've gotten to my destination. I haven't arrived as a father. I haven't arrived as a husband. I haven't arrived as a pastor. I haven't arrived as a Christian. I am in constant need of gospel growth daily. Daily. And so are you. In Colossians 1, Paul said that the gospel, those are the words he uses, the gospel which they had already heard and believed was growing and bearing fruit within them. Think about that. The gospel which they had already believed was at work, growing and bearing fruit, and that's a lifelong process. And when my friend and mentor and pastor Bruce first shared that with me, to me it was earth-shattering. That the gospel isn't a static message, but it's a dynamic power. And we never move beyond it. We never come to the place where we've arrived. And so, if you can acknowledge that, that you haven't yet arrived, and that while you may believe the gospel, wonderful, there is still more gospel growth that's needed How do you go about helping others and receiving the help of others? And we think back to Apollos. Apollos was the Presbyterian patron saint. He was a scholar. He was biblically well-versed. He was eloquent. He was was a a master of the classics as well as the Old Testament. And yet, yet Aquila and Priscilla took him aside to explain to him more accurately the way How do we go about helping others? Here's a third thought, just real quickly. Helping works best when there's humility. So Aquila and Priscilla, they recognized that Apollos' understanding of the gospel was incomplete in some way, that it was lacking, and and God had put them in a place to help him. So what did they do? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, in most translations, in fact, even the early versions of the ESV said they took him aside and explained to him more accurately the way of God. And what we see here is humility from both parties. Aquila and Priscilla, they didn't try to show up Apollos. They didn't publicly rebuke him. They didn't start a whisper campaign. You, do you understand what, 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 what Apollos is saying? They weren't trying to engage in a battle of wits. They understood that everyone is in need of gospel growth, and God had put them in a place to graciously serve Apollos. So they, they approached him with humility, and the text indicates, at least implicitly, that Apollos received their help with humility. So here's a few practical points. First, Aquila and Priscilla were authority figures in the early church. They were authority figures in the early church, and they had earned the right to be heard. They had earned the right to be heard, and if you haven't earned the right to be heard, don't expect people to listen to you. Now, that may sound harsh, but it's true. It's, it's a cliche, but it's, it's true nonetheless. If people don't know how much you care, they won't care how much you know. So we earn the right to be heard by faithfulness, and God puts us in positions, and they helped Apollos. Let me give you a second real practical thought. No one responds well when you say, hey, let me tell you how you're wrong. <laughs> no one responds well to that. So the text in a very explicit way says that Aquila and Priscilla in gentleness and in humility took Apollos aside and explained to him more accurately the way of God. So they were humble in how they approached him and he was humble in receiving their help. And that's a third thought. When you're on the receiving end, when God uh, has providentially and graciously put people in your life for gospel growth, approach that with humility. Think of how Paulus could have approached it. I mean, he's, he's credentialed. He's trained in Alexandria, an Old Testament scholar, a master of classics. But he understood that God had put this couple in his life to help him grow. And so he he received their help with humility. Sometimes when it comes to the gospel, friends, it's not a matter of precision, but a matter of passion. Perhaps a brother or sister sees a place in your life where the gospel hasn't yet taken root. We must receive that with humility because none of us have arrived. We all need gospel growth, and even admitting that is an act of humility. This past week we were talking talking with some pastor friends and we were talking about the Lord's Supper, the communion table, what some have called the the Presbyterian altar call. And that's what I want to say to you this morning as we come to the table. Maybe you have based your assurance of conversion on your possession of content. Maybe you've based your relationship with God on knowing the answers. And what I want you to understand this morning, friends, is that knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And so I want to call you, says, if you know you need the Lord, today is the day of repentance. Call out to him. Say, Lord, I've put put my confidence and hope and trust in knowing about you, but I want to know you intimately. As a husband knows a wife, I want to be passionate about you. I want there to be depth and breadth. Call out to him. Maybe you're a believer, but uh, you've you've gotten a big head, but you've lost a burning heart. We can all be there. It's, It's one of our family dysfunctions as Presbyterians. So, so maybe, maybe you've studied theology and you know all how, how to dot your doctrinal I's and cross your theological T's, but you've, you've in some ways grown cold to your first love. I want to call you back to Christ. And this table does both. It invites those who, who do not know Jesus to know him by faith. And for those who do know him, it strengthens them in that faith. And so let me pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table of grace, do a work within us that is beyond us. As Jason said during the confession of sin, if confessing our sin was a matter of getting it all right, we are, we are hopelessly lost because we can't confess every sin because we don't know every sin. There are sins hidden in the recesses of our heart, thoughts that we've had, stray thoughts that were not captive to, your, to, to faith. There are all kinds of things that we do that that do not magnify and glorify you, and we are oblivious to it. And so if we had to confess every single thing in order to be right, we we would be in trouble. In the same way, we don't come to this table having been perfected, but knowing that through it you perfect us a little bit more that you give us Jesus and strength for the journey. And so do do a work with us in this moment. For some, maybe it's to open their eyes the very first time to the beauty of Jesus, that they've seen their sin, but they've never found the solution in Christ. For many, I suspect, they know Jesus. But maybe, as tends to be our our, our problem, um, it's become all cerebral. It's become an intellectual faith. I pray that today they would once again marry intellect with deep passion, precision with loving Jesus with all their heart and soul and strength, not just their mind. Do that work within us for your glory and our good. Amen. Is uh, tops
1: on the list? can sing the whole thing all the way through. It does not uh, please my wife and kids. The Eagles, Scott Nicholson can give you a full lecture on every Eagles band member and song ever written. He did it to me as we drove to Houston <laughs> two years ago to work for flooding victims. And Fleetwood Mac, I love the greatest hits albums of those three. Um, and when I think through uh, the songs in scripture, the Psalms, David. Uh, Has some greatest hits and I don't know where you would put psalm 23 if you would lead off David's album or you would close it with the lord. You would close it with the lord is my shepherd There in the end of his psalm 23. He says you prepare a table a feast He says you prepare a feast before me where In the presence of my enemies. How would david write that? Why would david write that? Because when David's life was on the line, when King Saul was pursuing him to end him, David hides out in a backwoods temple and says to the priest there, "What do you got to eat? I'm famished." And the priest says, "I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread." So the priest this is First Samuel 21, verse six. So the priest gave him the holy bread. There was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, the presence of the Lord. And that's what we have this morning, the bread of the presence of the Lord. We are being pursued by an enemy, an enemy in the world, the accuser who's after us. We're being pursued by the world itself and all of its fallen structures and, and ruined desires. We are being pursued by the old man and the old woman in us whispering to us to settle for something less than the bread of the presence but that's what Jesus has for us this morning is just him it's the grace of Christ himself and so if you've come hungry this morning for something more than what you can offer yourself more than what the world can offer you more than the temptations that linger at your heart then Christ is here for you come hungry to this table